Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello, everyone. This is the History Hit Warfare podcast, and I'm your host, James Rogers. You know it all by now. Each week, twice a week, we bring you brand new military histories that rage from Napoleonic battles and Cold War confrontations through to the Normandy landings and 9-11. We've been bringing these to you all year and it has been an amazing year. Me and the team, the amazing team at History Hit, who I have to thank, have loved every single minute of it. Thanks to Sophie and Elena and Steve and all the team. They are a great bunch. Thank you all so much. Now, I don't have to keep telling you the spiel. It's Christmas time. Happy holidays, wherever you are around the world. We have a special series of episodes for you this holiday week. Episodes that range from The Great Escape, a true favourite at this time of year. I hope you're enjoying, after you've eaten your Christmas dinner, sitting there and watching Steve McQueen on his motorbike, through to episodes on Peace on Earth. That is, this episode seems fitting given the season. We have Professor Ian Johnson, an old friend of the podcast, my old friend, back to tell us about the United Nations, why it was formed out of the Grand Alliance, out of the brutal cauldron of upheaval of the Second World War. He talks to us about how public opinion showed that people were willing to have part of their national militaries put under the control of the UN to ensure a peaceful period, to ensure that the organisation had the power it needed to instil peace around the world if any little Hitlers should pop up. And this was learning lessons, of course, from the failures and weaknesses of the League of Nations that didn't have that sort of power. There was even talk of a UN military. So where did it all go wrong? Or did it all go wrong? Let's be optimistic. The UN and other collective organisations like NATO, well, are they better suited for keeping peace on Earth in their current format? We don't want to jinx it, but although small conflicts continue to sadly rage in places around the world, and with some caveats, we should all be thankful that there is, well, There has been no great power conflict for over 70 years. We discuss all these questions and more today. Ian is a fantastic historian. So all it leaves me to say is Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, have an amazing new year. So here is Ian Johnson on the United Nations and Peace on Earth. Enjoy. Hi Ian, welcome back to the History Hit Warfare 
podcast. You've been on so many times now, we might as well call you a co-host for this and for Dan's pod as well. How are you doing? Terrific. Terrific. It's a pleasure to be back. Good, good, good. Where are you in the world at the moment? I know you've been traveling around lots recently for the launch of your new book. I have. I am currently, though, in chilly and cloudy South Bend, Indiana. Okay, and this is the home of Notre Dame University. That's right. Uh, my home institution. Famous for, of course, you and their football team. That's right. Had a pretty good year this year. I've got a lot of the football players in my classes. Some of them owe me final papers still. We'll see how those turn out, but yeah. <laughs> okay, good. And how did they do this year then? The essays were pretty good. Uh, the football team no, also did pretty well. I don't care about the essays. We need to know about the football. Yeah, they went 11-1. and one. They'll be going to a big bowl game on New Year's Day. So they, yeah, no complaints. I think some people hope they'd play for a national championship. That didn't quite happen, but had a great year. Still sounds pretty good, and it doesn't sound like you're going to be getting those essays in any time soon, then. <laughs> you know, they're good students, I will say. They hold them to a high standard. As a fellow academic, you are an eternal optimist, and I will give you that. Now, it is a time for optimism. It is Christmas time. Peace on Earth. And we're here to talk about the United Nations, a project for peace and stability in our time. I remember going through the papers between President Truman and Clark Eichelberger during that initial phase towards the end of the Second World War and some of the aims that really laid the foundations for the establishment of the United Nations. And it, it was a kind of a mission for peace. Would you agree with this? Is this where the United Nations project comes from? Is this the intellectual origin? Well, yeah, you know, the United Nations project, it can be interpreted in a lot of ways, but I think you have to start with its antecedent, the League of Nations. So the League of Nations had been born out of the aftermath of the First World War, this fervent and I think very genuine desire to avoid the horrors of the First World War, the, the enormous death toll, the seeming senselessness. The League of Nations was supposed to justify some of the sacrifice, a solution to the whole international system in some way, shape or form. It had a lot of different advocates. Woodrow Wilson was really the key driving figure. It was organized, embedded in the Treaty of Versailles that ended Germany's participation in the First World War. And the League actually began meeting in January of 1920. But ironically, given much of its American origin, without U.S. participation, because Wilson had been unable to persuade the U.S. public or the U.S. Senate to vote in favor for a variety of reasons. So the League comes into being designed to solve all of these problems, to bring about peace, and it failed to do so. Over the course of the 1920s and 30s, it became clear that the League really couldn't function as intended as a collective security organization. And what we mean when we use that term is an organization that essentially has a set of rules, and if any one state within the system breaks the rules, they're punished by the rest. The League was supposed to do this, and it failed to do so for a bunch of different reasons. One of them was the absence of the U.S., the other was that it required near unanimity to do anything. And so let's say you were the Japanese delegates and you just invaded Manchuria and uh, the world was pretty mad about your violation of international law. Well, you could tell them in no uncertain terms that you didn't care what they thought because you were able to block any major decisions through the League. So we see this in 1931. Italy invades Ethiopia. 35, the League similarly powerless. And by 1939, the League is essentially ceased to function, moved its archives to New Jersey in a sign that it was giving up on Europe <laughs> to some degree, abandoning Geneva. And we see at that moment, as the League collapses, proposals for something new. And interestingly, the proposals come right before the Second World War begins in Europe. Franklin Roosevelt, who saw the war coming, he'd been involved in the League, he was interested in these big ambitious institutions that might solve the problem of war in the international system. He told the State Department very quietly, 
to begin organizing what he called a post-war planning committee. Now, again, this is before the war had even begun. And in 1939, they began meeting with the purview of coming up with a new international institution to replace the League of Nations, a League of Nations 2.0. This is actually where we see the dream that would become the United Nations beginning. This is pretty visionary stuff, Ian. I mean, it's optimistic stuff as well. If Roosevelt is planning a post-war planning committee, but also putting together this idea of a next step collective security agreement, one that builds on some of the lessons for the League of Nations, who does he choose to be part of this committee? Who are the architects of this UN project? Well, it's interesting because Roosevelt is a man who lives and dies by polling. He's very concerned about his public opinion. Really the first president who makes many of his major decisions based on the numbers he's told by pollsters. So he wants some distance. He doesn't want to be too close to this in case an isolationist U.S. public thinks he's trying to build a new world government, which he sort of was. I will note as an aside, when he's been discussing the early planning for this new body, one of the things he jokingly says to an aide is that he might be interested in becoming president of the world after serving as president of the United States. So he did have these ambitions, perhaps. Lots of ambition. Lots of ambition, but he is trying to keep his distance. So he hands this over to the Secretary of State, who in turn hands it over to one of his rivals within his own department, a man named Sumner Wells, who was a close advisor of the president, considered at the radical edge of the internationalist wing of the Democratic Party. And Sumner Wells in turn puts together a secret committee, which is a mix of intellectuals, policymakers. There's some members of Congress who are involved in various ways. But the really key figure, interestingly, is not an American by birth. He is a Russian emigre named Leo Pazvolsky, who is essentially told, come up with something you can give to Sumner Wells that Wells can give to the president at some point. So Pazvolsky, this Russian emigre economist, is essentially the one who is going to put meat on the bones of Roosevelt's vague vision in the 1940, early 1940s. And so this sounds like it was a bit of a poison chalice. I like the idea that it was handed down from one person to another to distance themselves and then handed from the Secretary of State to a rival. Is that how it was seen by some of those within the Roosevelt administration? Was this something that kind of, well, number one, you didn't want to talk about until you'd perhaps started the war or won the war? And number two, if you're looking back at the lessons of the League of Nations, then this might not be something that's deemed to be achievable was it deemed achievable to have this organization that was supposed to achieve world peace? Well, it's very hotly debated. And to understand how the UN begins, this brainstorming process begins, you have to understand how Roosevelt managed his administration, which is essentially he didn't want the left hand and the right hand to know what they were doing, respectively. So Pazvolsky's drawing up one plans. The Joint Chiefs of Staff are commissioned privately to begin drawing up a military plan for the post-war order that centers on an international organization all these different parts of the government will be coming up with their own plans independently, and Roosevelt is the only one who holds all the strings. And the reason he did this is, one, so that he could manage things, and also to play people off against each other to maintain his role as the decider, the key decision maker. So we see within the State Department that you've got a much more conservative internationalist view that thinks that this UN project might be useful for U.S. interests, but is secondary to some other things for the post-war order. And you've got others like Pazvolsky, and Sumner Wells, who are very keen on this project and think that this could be the rudiments of a world government, something radical and revolutionary and new that could really transcend what the League of Nations had even accomplished. So there was a great deal of division about how practical this was and how realistic. And it's important to note that none of this is really coming to light. This is all being conducted in you know, smoky, backfilled rooms, at least until about 1943, when elements of this 
start appearing in public in various ways. And Roosevelt very carefully gauges the public response. Well, I was going to say, because it's all well and good wanting to be the leader of the world. And Roosevelt was not the first and I'm sure won't be the last US president that has such ambitions. But in order to do this and to be a organization of United Nations, you might need to bring other nations on board. So when do they start to negotiate with the other great powers of the Allies during the Second World War? So the, the various other powers obviously play a key role in the formation of the United Nations. It is an American project from the outset, in part because the United States is the only power in a position from 1939 to 1943 to sit back and think about the post-war order rather than simply thinking about survival. When Roosevelt begins broaching this subject with Churchill, for instance, in 1941, they meet to discuss shared war aims even before U.S. entry into the war. The Atlantic Charter is part of this project. Churchill is both skeptical and really not super interested in thinking about the post-war order until the war is actually won, or even at least until America enters the war to say the least. at all. Yeah, he's got other things on his mind at this point, Ian. Very much so. And the Soviets, similarly, show no interest, essentially, in this organization until, really, in 1943 and 44, Stalin appoints a secret committee headed by the former foreign minister, Maxim Litvinov, to basically look at what the United States has been discussing and pitching periodically over the various wartime conferences. So British and Soviet involvement, and they're really the two key players besides the U.S. in the formation of the U.N., they're gradually coming into the story after the U.S. has essentially already sketched out what sort of international organization they would like. And I think it's interesting to see how they respond to this. So Stalin is, as you might imagine, quite skeptical. And Maxim Litvinov comes up with essentially a proposal for what the Soviet reaction should be. And let me quote him briefly to give you some very clear sense of what the Soviets thought here. Maxim Litvinov was tasked with studying the American proposals for the United Nations Organization in late April 1944. With great candor, he told Stalin in a written report shortly thereafter that, quote, we are interested in the establishment of a new international organization of security to a much lesser degree than the United States, England, or any other states. And the reason that he presented this to Stalin was that there would be fewer opportunities for the Soviet Union to use this body in Soviet interests. And in addition, the main principles of the UN organization seem to be directly counter to Soviet interests and ideology. So, Essentially, he concluded the following, which is just a delightful quote. This is from Ilya Gaiduk's book on Soviet participation in the UN. He wrote the following to Stalin. Our aim should be to, quote, avoid the impression that we put obstacles in the way of the establishment of this organization and thus assume responsibility for the eventual failure of negotiations. So in essence, the task of the Soviet Union was to prevent the organization from functioning as American and British policymakers might want, while avoiding the appearance that they were, in fact, torpedoing the United Nations from functioning. A rather delightful policy position, and one so clearly outlined in this report provided in 1944 to Stalin. And one so clearly irrelevant to contemporary politics, Ian. No one would <laughs> ever think that that would be the ambitions of Russia today, of course. But one of the main criticisms of the United Nations is that it is an arm of US and Western power. And you can see how it doesn't perhaps fits in line with the ambitions of the Soviet Union. So how does Roosevelt manage to bring these powers together and to form the United Nations? Do so they come together for any sort of deliberations, discussions, a conference? Absolutely. We see extended negotiations about the form and function of the United Nations project. And the result is a series of compromises that essentially destroy Roosevelt's original vision. 
to some degree. The compromises to get all of the states actually participating very much moved the organization away from what Roosevelt had intended. Again, Roosevelt's vision at first was what he called the four policemen model. And that was that the United Kingdom, the United States, the Soviet Union, and nationalist China would respectively police broad sections of the world. They would have special rights and privileges as a result. That would form something of the executive committee of this new organization. And then there'd be some sort of broader legislature dealing with non-security matters that would make up everybody else, all the sovereign states in the international system. The problem was that for the United Kingdom, the UN was clearly viewed as an anti-imperialist project in a variety of ways and ran counter to both Churchill's vision and to a lesser degree, at least for the post-war world. So we see an undermining of the trusteeship system that was intended to essentially decolonize the entire world. This was a key part of the initial American proposal, one that the British were not super enthusiastic about. So we see that very much being watered down. And in the end, the trusteeship council that's supposed to break up the British and French empires ends up managing a bunch of islands in Italian Somaliland and not a whole lot besides. To compromise with the Soviets, Roosevelt essentially had to give up on large portions of his vision about the enforcement mechanisms. The whole vision had been you needed a more muscular version of the League of Nations if this new body was going to work. And so the initial idea had been that maybe the UN should have its own army, navy, air force, and maybe even nuclear arsenal. It's a wildly ambitious project. The Soviets liked parts of this if they got access to, say, American aviation technology or the atomic bomb. Maybe that would be... That would be kind of useful. Yeah, it, yeah, it that would makes be. sense. So to American surprise, the Soviets come back and say, great, yeah, if you have, say, a bunch of your new B-36 prototypes, bombers, the, ironically called the Peacemaker, this massive four-engine bomber that could fly 10,000 miles, yeah, if we get access to that, maybe we can participate in this new international air force that you're planning to set up. But quickly, American policymakers, they become leery of this prospect, and it's clear the Soviets also are maybe not so keen to do some of the international policing as a friendly member of the United Nations. And so we see this proposal for an international military force watered down and watered down until essentially it's going to be decided after the UN comes into being. There will be a special UN military staff committee organized in New York that will be the nucleus of a future military force, but its actual form and function, everybody can decide after the UN starts meeting. So in these ways, Roosevelt, before his death, ended up compromising large parts of the project to try to get the British and the Soviets involved in a variety of ways. It's interesting, isn't it? Because as we move from late 1945 into 1946, when I've been in the archives, you see there's a kind of renewed intellectual public support for the idea that there should be one world or none. And by that, people like Stillard and Einstein... They're all coming together and they're saying that the nuclear power, weaponized nuclear power, the nuclear bomb, needs to be in the hands of one world, one organization, in order to control it from proliferating and starting what ends up being the Cold War. But it is all of this dismissed then by this committee as they move through into a post-Second World War world. Is it seen as just being completely unachievable? Well, it, the... UN Military Staff Committee, when it begins meeting, there's a great deal of hope that this will in fact result in an international military force. There's a fair amount of enthusiasm still in the middle and ranks of the US military who request UN bases that would be locations for joint British, American, and Soviet forces in Dakar and Cyprus, Borneo. There's a plan for a whole necklace of bases around the equator all over the globe. I didn't know that. Yeah, quite That's a bit incredible. of enthusiasm for this in 1944 and 45. When the UN Military Staff Committee begins meeting, the British and the French, who are, have been now included at British request, the Chinese 
and the United States send very high-level delegations. We're talking about the Chinese commander-in-chief of all ground forces is sent, the French chief of staff is sent, the commander or the admiral in charge of the British home fleet, the Royal Navy's home fleet is sent. On the U.S. side, you've got the guy literally in charge of the U.S. nuclear arsenal as one of the lead negotiators. Simultaneously, he has both tasks. Key figures, and there is a great deal of ambition, and they genuinely believe when they start meeting in February 1946 that they can come up with an international military policing force. One that, say, if a Hitler pops up, could immediately destroy him within a matter of weeks. Some of this is based on perhaps a misreading of precision bombing, an area you know much better than I do. Uh, there's a sense, well, we'll just, you know, a new Hitler arises, we can just bomb him out of existence. You're not actually wrong, by the way, Ian. Just to completely hijack your podcast, what we've got here is General H.H. H. Arnold, who's the first head of the U.S. Air Force, is actually one of those who comes out initially in support of this idea of having a U.N. military. But he's quite canny at this point because he says, yeah, yeah, all well and good. Sure, great idea. Let everyone unite in this United Nations, have one world together, holding this military might in cooperation but let's just keep massively funding the U.S. Air Force as much as we can to make sure that we have some really strong offensive capabilities just in case it all goes wrong. So there's some strong military support, and this guy kind of engineered the entire of this idea of precision bombing and its strategic utility around the world to pinpoint and take out these enemies, these little Hitlers that pop up around the world, but he was also hedging his bets at this time. Absolutely, and if you think about this from a budgetary and institutional perspective... After the war, it wasn't clear exactly what the form and function of this gigantic U.S. military establishment would be. The idea that the U.S. would serve as one of the world's policemen essentially gave a great model for planning and demanding huge sums of money. General Marshall is going to talk about maintaining conscription after the war as necessary if the U.S. will serve as one of the policemen. They talk about universal military service. So there's actually a lot of enthusiasm in the military establishment in the U.S., that this is going to give some direction and justify huge budgets and the maintenance of a large military force in the aftermath of the war. Even if, you know, whether or not the UN project works, the US role as world policeman will justify this. So yeah, absolutely. I see that from perspective of my documents as well. Universal military service. I mean, as we sit here in the year where we had the rapid withdrawal from Afghanistan, it's strange to think that there was ever such a concept as universal military service bringing nations together to serve this mandatory military service, this conscription, to meet threats around the world. And I suppose it shows how far the world has come, or we could argue slid since that point. But um, yeah, definitely a point to think about, especially as we come to the end of 2021. But let's move on. Let's be positive. There are stories to tell. Myths to explore, legends that shaped the medieval world to captivate the imagination. I'm Matt Lewis, and with my co-host, Dr. Kat Jarman, I've gone medieval. We're waiting here for you to join us. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and let everyone know that you've gone medieval with History Hits. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. 
And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's a question that I've always wanted to ask you, Ian. Why on earth was New York chosen? as the headquarters for the United Nations, because for me, that seems like it might just further add to the fact that this is seen as an arm of Western and US power. Absolutely. So the League of Nations had met in Europe, which was symbolically quite significant with the US absent. This was, it was really a British and French dominated institution. And the United Nations was going to be, obviously, from the perspective of American planners that had been working on this, an American dominated or at least led institution. And there was a, a great deal of enthusiasm that the U.S. would get to host the new headquarters of the organization. 250 different locations were proposed and discussed at various meetings in 1944 and 45. Oh, do you have any of them to hand in? Yes. So there were discussions for all different locations in the U.S. Of course, there were European locations. London was mentioned as one possibility. In the U.S., the prime candidates were San Francisco where the UN conference had met in April 1945 and actually essentially wrote the UN charter. There'd been talk about Boston. Interestingly, there was tension between the Asian and Pacific powers, Australia, China. They really wanted a West Coast of the US location. The European powers and most of Latin America preferred an East Coast location. The one that's really interesting is South Dakota was discussed. So rural South Dakota, the Black Hills, <laughs> which is a beautiful but very isolated part of the United States. The governor of South Dakota managed to offer a hundred square miles of wide open rolling hills. And the idea was that a new global capital could be built on this site. They actually had a plan, a model town or city that they brought up at one of the UN planning meetings. It was going to be a town, you know, a city of a hundred thousand people built solely to house the UN in South Dakota. And they believed that also isolating the UN from the luxurious settings of New York or San Francisco might instill some virtue, isolating these diplomats. As you might imagine, diplomats wanted to be in a big city. And very quickly, New York became the leading candidate. The way in which New York City itself was selected is kind of fun. So essentially, it was concluded that the UN needed a big footprint. It needed to house six to 8,000 workers and diplomats and personnel at least. And so there was a plan to build it outside of the city, maybe along the Hudson somewhere. 
kind of a model, a small model city that would serve as the headquarters. But the mayor of New York at this time, who was a corrupt mover and shaker, one might say, really wanted it in the city. And he cut a series of deals and maybe manipulated the construction market in New York to help the Rockefeller family acquire attractive land along the East River, about six square blocks, that the Rockefellers then offered to essentially donate to the United Nations project. This would keep the UN in New York City proper. And on top of it, the Rockefellers owned much of the land around the site, which they turned into a giant housing complex. So they would make money in the process, essentially. And so this bargain essentially was reached where New York City would become the hub. This site would be used to build some skyscrapers that could then house all of these individuals coming into the city. And so eventually, diplomats keen to remain in the lap of luxury in New York City proper decided that they would accept this offer and took the land and broke ground on construction in 1948. Wow. Well, there you go. So it's all about a little bit of economics, a little bit of money making, who you know, but also diplomats like to party. It's as simple as that. And New York City is the place to party. So at the beginning of the UN, then, we're talking 1945. It's established. We've got it off the ground. It's one hell of an ambitious project. What is the public response like in places like Britain and the US? Was there broad response to this new international organization for peace? It's remarkable, especially if you consider US public opinion before the war had been so isolationist. There was very little desire to get involved internationally. Roosevelt had to drag the U.S. into preparing for the Second World War, kicking and screaming to some degree. But by 1944, both the U.S. and British publics are extremely enthusiastic about the United Nations project to a degree that's really quite shocking and something we forget. So to give you some sense, a majority of the British public told pollsters in the U.K. that they favored turning over the entire British armed forces to the new world parliament that was being organized in 1944. 54% of Americans approved of the idea of the United Nations as a world government. This is a quote from uh, Gallup polling. A world government with the power to control the armed forces of all nations, including the United States. And as late as 1947, 82% of Americans favored essentially a collective security apparatus through the UN, even if that meant turning over part or all of the US military to United Nations control. What's remarkable about this, again, is that this marked a drastic shift in attitudes, both in the UK and US, towards international institutions. There was a real groundswell of public support for what amounted to a sort of proto-global government in the form of the United Nations. And the idea that all of the sacrifices of the war were justified if they resulted in this strong new organization that would actually be able to safeguard global peace in the aftermath of the war. It does. It just shows you just how brutal and horrendous the war had been on people's lives at this point, that they were able to come together, really, across these different nations and have a, a shared opinion on what role the UN could play in the future. I mean, the idea that you could really supplant sovereignty with this idea of a collective security to have other nations, I guess, come together and control your national military, it's unthinkable today. So as we go forwards then... As the UN starts to take its early missions, fulfill its early role, does it start to play out as these architects had intended? Does it maintain this public optimism and support? Uh, sadly, no. Though, interestingly, public support is generally sympathetic to the UN project for much longer than policymakers themselves behind the scenes. So by April 1947, the UN Military Staff Committee, for instance, who's tasked with essentially building this new international military force to maintain global order and peace, 
they've essentially concluded that no consensus is possible. The lead Soviet delegate who'd been sent was a general named Vasilyev, Alexander Vasilyev, who was a senior member of the GRU, the Soviet military intelligence. And his task was essentially to guarantee nothing came out of these talks of any kind. And he did so very effectively. He played the various delegations off against each other. He vetoed even writing reports that would be passed up to the Secretary General of the United Nations or the Security Council. And so by April 1947, very frustrated, the British, French, Chinese, and American delegates essentially write a report indicating that they cannot reach any sort of consensus and that they need to table their activities at least temporarily. So the Military Staff Committee falls apart within essentially two years of its creation. This is obviously a key problem because the reason the League, all these planners believe the League had failed is that it wasn't able to enforce any of its decisions. And without an enforcement mechanism through this new international peacekeeping force, it appeared the UN would very much go the same way. Now, an interesting part of this story, of course, is that it did come into use once. So some peacekeeping was done, essentially unarmed peacekeepers in the Middle East starting in 48, but one actual instance of deploying UN forces or at least under a UN flag, to a combat zone was the Korean War. The Korean War was only possible, of course, because the Soviets had been absent from the key meeting at the Security Council. But the Korean War really proved that this whole idea of collective security didn't work. It had only been possible to authorize the deployment of forces and the creation of a UN command in Korea because the Soviets hadn't been present. And once the war actually got going, the UN wanted to make decisions on tactics and operations even armistice negotiations, and essentially made it much more difficult to actually conduct the Korean War. On top of it, the UN provided very little in terms of financial support, in terms of manpower. It essentially became an American operation with the support of American allies, like the United Kingdom, like South Korea, obviously, who'd been invaded, Turkey. But these were really products of bilateral relations, not products of the UN itself. And so by 1952, the United States had essentially given up on collective security working in any way, shape, or form, as the example of Korea made it clear that it wasn't workable in practice. So the idea of UN peacekeeping continues, for better or for worse. I mean, moving through to robust peacekeeping missions in the 1960s in places like the Congo, and arguably quite a renewed period of robust peacekeeping missions today in places like Mali. I mean, you have record death tolls of UN peacekeepers at the moment. But the whole point of UN peacekeeping is that it's meant to be impartial at this point, and is meant to ensure that the uh, conflicting parties go to the table. UN peacekeepers are put in at a point when discussions are happening. They're not meant to be deployed during active conflict. And so they're very, very different to what a UN military was supposed to be. So what happens to this idea of a UN military then? Does it just simply disappear? Well, it continues in two forms. So on one hand, we do see the maintenance of peacekeeping forces within the United Nations. But instead of being the great powers, the policemen who could prevent someone like Hitler from rising again, we don't really see this to be the case. We see peacekeeping as during the Cold War as largely lightly armed or unarmed, blue-helmeted soldiers provided by countries that are viewed as not major powers coming from Scandinavia, from eventually from places across Africa and South Asia, serving a very different role. Again, essentially superintending peace, trying to oversee humanitarian relief and assistance. We see that shift in the course of the Cold War. The great powers instead move to a very different model. The Truman administration essentially concludes by about 1952 that collective security is not working. There already been a decision to shift towards this strategy of containment 
in the Truman administration vis-a-vis -vis the Soviet Union, where instead of being a partner, the Soviets, who had, by the way, vetoed 57 times measures in the Security Council to block the outbreak of conflict in various places, the Soviets were now viewed as an adversary, an American strategy designed to prevent communist expansion. And the engine of this, of course, became regional alliances instead of the United Nations. And the key one, of course, was the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, which was formed in 1949, again, in the aftermath of the UN's collective security failure, or the failure of the UN Military Staff Committee to organize a collective security force. NATO comes into being in 1949, interestingly phrased or, or couched very much in terms that suggests it is going to be an auxiliary to the United Nations, a temporary aid to peace and security until the UN can get its act together. This is very much the way that it's pitched. But in 1952, the UN commander in Korea, General Matthew Ridgway, an American officer who oversaw the defeat of North Korean and Chinese forces, was sent to Europe to essentially put meat on the bones of the new NATO organization. And in my mind, this is the moment when essentially American policy concludes it's not a temporary failure. The UN was fundamentally unable to function as had been envisioned back in the 1940s. And NATO is one of the key replacements. This alliance of states that share something in terms of values, ideally aligned along democratic lines, obviously not all NATO members were of that background, but most were, with the ability to actually function together as a multinational force and protect its various member states, something that the UN was not able to do. So by 1952, we see essentially two threads, this new international peacekeeping, which again, largely depends on unarmed or lightly armed soldiers seconded to the UN for short periods, and then a much more robust set of regional alliances designed essentially to safeguard national interest. So you could say that NATO comes out of the UN project. It is a kind of spin-off of collective security that can work. And in the back of my mind somewhere, am I right in thinking that there are even discussions about maybe inviting the Russians into NATO? Yes, Abby, we actually see this transpire. We see the possibility of extending olive branches across into Eastern Europe. The Soviets want in at one point, by the way, they talk about the possibility of membership. But of course, the whole problem with the UN from the American and British perspective was that including the Soviets had prevented the UN from functioning because the Soviets kept vetoing critiques or even discussion of, say, their occupation of northern Iran or their military buildup against Turkey or all of these different issues that start unfolding immediately after the Second World War. So at the end of the day, NATO was designed to do what the UN couldn't, in part by excluding the Soviets from participation. Do you think the Soviets would have a different perception of this, Ian? I know that you, you speak the language, you lived over there for a long time. I mean, it's all well and good saying that the Soviets were the stalwarts that messed up the process or were holding things back, perhaps still thinking in terms of great power politics and superpowers and sovereign states. And, you know, we could say great realist things about this and don't trust another nation. It's foolish to do so. But would the Soviets share your appraisal if we were to go back and talk to them? You know, so... No, their perspective is, of course, a little bit different. Their view of what the United Nations was supposed to be was fundamentally different from the outset. They didn't want it to have the values of the Atlantic Charter, talk about self-determination and democracy. They didn't want that anywhere near the UN project. In fact, until 1944, they didn't want it to be called the United Nations Organization. They preferred the term uh, International Security Organization. Very different view. And what they wanted was essentially a preservation of the Grand Alliance that might look a little bit like the Congress of Vienna after the defeat of Napoleon in 1815, where a bunch of great powers with 
perhaps a few shared interests agreed to generally negotiate among themselves at the expense of smaller powers when necessary to preserve the global order after the Second World War. Now, of course, this is fundamentally counter to the idea of a, an assembly of equal and sovereign states, which ended up becoming so key to the United Nations project. So the Soviets are, of course, fundamentally frustrated by the direction the UN takes, especially as it becomes less of a security organization and more of an economic and social and eventually human rights organization. Uh, this very much does not align with what Stalin wanted to get out of the organization. Nonetheless, they consider that participation is better than exclusion, especially after they get an ironclad veto that allows them to prevent not just votes against them, but even discussion of matters at the Security Council that they might not like. Yes, of course. And we could talk about vetoes until the end of time and UN Security Council reform and whether or not that could boost and revive the United Nations. But we'll save that one for another podcast. It's so interesting talking to you about this, Ian. At this time, at the moment, when, of course, Russia is lining up troops on the border of Ukraine and Ukraine is doing the same and NATO is bolstering its commitment to try and counter this and balance power and to stop the Russians from launching what seems to be an imminent attack. And you've really helped us put all of this into some sort of context. But I want to finish on a positive note because I work with the United Nations. They do some amazing work on holding nations to account in terms of international norms on sovereignty and the use of force, upholding international law, and lots of things, of course, outside of the security and warfare parameters when it comes to global health as well. So what do you think have been the major successes of the United Nations? And do you think there is going to be a place for the UN into the future? Do we see a positive future for the UN? Well, you know, it's... The UN has reshaped the international system in so many ways. The League of Nations was at its core, in part because of the American absence, it was an organization of empires dedicated to protecting their own political and economic futures. And the United Nations is certainly not that. Again, it may have started as an American project in many respects, but it's become you know, a place that recognizes and enhances the quality of sovereignty of all states in the international system with mostly good that that entails, sometimes bad, but it's become a place that has made starting wars more difficult, I think, for bad actors. The norms that, of course, liberal internationalists above all are so keen on, it clearly has had some effect. There have been studies indicating that UN peacekeeping efforts since the end of the Cold War, they're not great when kinetic conflict when a civil war has actually begun, but they're actually pretty good at guaranteeing humanitarian aid relief in preventing conflicts from beginning. When UN peacekeepers are deployed with the support of local actors, they've been pretty effective in many instances. So it has reshaped the international order, and it's particularly given a, a voice to smaller states that did not have access to international institutions, certainly before the First World War, but even under the League of Nations had, had limited voice in many instances. So we can't, you know, <laughs> discard the United Nations as a complete and abject failure, even if it didn't live up to the intentions of those who, who had originally designed it during the Second World War. And you're right. And, and amazing work continues to happen in the UN General Assembly as well, which gives a voice to a lot of the medium and smaller nations around the world that can club together to have that voice on the international stage. So some remarkable work does happen for international good at the United Nations, and I completely share your sentiments on it. And Ian, you've brought up so many topics. I mean, we need to do an episode on the Korean War, we need to do an episode on UN peacekeeping, so many other things you've brought up 
that we need to do episodes on. And that's always a sign of a good podcast, when we leave with more things to talk about than we started with. And I know that you're going to have a book coming out in the very near future on a lot of those topics, so we'll get you back on to talk about those. But please tell us, where can we learn a bit more about this? And also, plug your book that's out now. I know you've been jetting off all around America promoting it. You need to promote it to us now. Absolutely, yes. So my previous book is on a very different topic, though I think thematically it shares some of these questions about the origins of war and the maintenance of peace. So my recent book is entitled Faustian Bargain, The Soviet-German Partnership and the Origins of the Second World War. It explores 20 years of on-again, off-again cooperation between Germany and the Soviet Union and how that led to the outbreak of the Second World War in Europe. It's uh, with Oxford University Press. You can get it major booksellers. You can also check out, uh, of course, my previous discussions with James on this very topic. But uh, yes, and I'm working on a new book that I'll be happy to share and pitch more as it gets a little closer to fruition. Wonderful. Ian, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. I look forward to seeing you again in person soon. We can have a beer and I look forward to getting you back on the podcast again soon. Absolutely. I look forward to it too. Thanks. If you're enjoying this podcast and you're looking for more fascinating warfare content, then go and subscribe to our Warfare Wednesdays newsletter. Just follow the link in the show notes to find out more. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.